The masters almost surely have a plan This clearly may be something near beyond the realm of man And until you've thoroughly tested every last close just That's true, Dr. Zayas. Very well. Where would we be without THC? Cause we know they're lying to us, just don't know to what degree. Yeah, where would we be without THC? The highest side chat show, Greg Carwood Company. All right, higher side chatters, as we continue to examine pockets of power in the human story and areas where we see the course of history altered by the will of a few well-placed people, we've come to recognize the actions of the Holy Roman Empire and the overall campaign against magic just might take the cake. Of course popes and kings couldn't help but try to eradicate this natural technology wherever they encountered it, because the empowerment that comes from direct access to the other and the knowledge that you're more than just a helpless victim of circumstance did not mesh well with their plan for full-spectrum dominance. And we're still feeling the effects today, because centuries later, the majority of people are still completely ignorant to this entire slice of the human experience, and most attitudes about magical practice generally range from it being a bunch of silly, useless, primitive superstitions to it being evil, dangerous, and not worth the trouble it will bring. Conveniently, these attitudes of apathy and fear still serve their same purpose— and that ruthlessly fractured magical knowledge is still being put back together by the passionate few scholars and enthusiasts determined to restore it. Well, today's guest, Dr. Stephen Skinner, has dedicated much of his life to this very restoration and is one of the leading authorities on classical magic and the grimoires of old. Dr. Skinner was educated at Sydney University, graduating in English literature, geography, and ancient Greek philosophy, and was awarded his Ph.D. in Classics from the University of Newcastle for a thesis on tracking magical texts through the ages. He's the author of more than 36 books published in more than 20 different languages, and among them are numerous translations and restorations of magical writings, rituals, and grimoires that are often reaching the English-speaking world for the first time, ladies and gentlemen. He's also responsible for introducing real feng shui to the West and wrote the first 20th century English book on the subject in 1976. A man of many accomplishments and a true champion of the re-enchantment of the world, Dr. Stephen Skinner, welcome to The Higher Side. Oh, thanks for such a nice introduction. (laughs) I try, I try, and thanks so much for being here. I'm seriously in awe of what you've done because you've really left your mark on the world and expanded the knowledge base in this underrated area in ways that really can't even be measured. And maybe to grease the wheels a bit here, could you elaborate on some of those accomplishments or tell people about some of the translations or restorations you're most proud of for those that are unfamiliar? Okay. Well, for me, when I was a kid, I probably had the same misconceptions about magic as everybody else. but. When I started digging, I realized that it's really a technology. It's a series of procedures. And although people don't normally associate scientific method with magic, scientific method is simply a matter of doing an experiment and seeing if it comes out as predicted. And if it does, that validates the theory. Now, a lot of the early grimoires actually had sections in them, which was called experimentum offering the same sort of experiments and a prediction of the results. And this fascinated me. And I went back through the grimoires and then from them back to Greek magic and 
right back to the Greco-Egyptian magicians because the Greco-Egyptian magicians, there was no problem with authority, at least until the Romans came, mm. because most of the Greco-Egyptian magicians were also temple priests. So religion, general belief, and magic all came out of the same buildings. Recently, I spent some time in Egypt looking at some of these temples, which are quite quite a good state of repair, with the formula still written on the walls. Mm-hmm. But my initial access to this formula was through the, the Greek notes of a couple of magicians who lived in the second or third century AD. And they were not they were not frightened about writing down what it was that they did and what the results were from this, even to making comments at the end. You know, this has been tested so many times and works. And I thought that was a very direct way of looking at magic and about, you know, a million miles from perhaps the 21st century way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that, that was my that was my driver. And I have to say that although I got academic qualifications because I had to learn to read classical Greek to be able to read these papyri, and I, I did go through every single papyri that's known that is connected with magic. Wow. And that was a lot of reading. <laughs> there are a number of translations of bits and pieces, but the translations, and somebody's going to have to forgive me for saying this, were done by people who didn't understand what magic was. Or they would just think, well, it's superstition, so it doesn't matter how you translate it. So there are something like 60 different words for the different procedures of magic in ancient Greek. The modern translations translate all 60 words as either spell or write. So when you read the translations, you have no idea what it is that that they're actually driving at. So I went back and looked at the original Greek and figured it out and went through every single spell, split them up into different categories and worked out what the methods were. So I published this as a book called Techniques of Greco-Egyptian Magic. It's not a recipe book. It's not designed for somebody to pick it up and do magic, but it's designed to sort out what was done, how it was done. Perhaps the next book will be a little bit more practical, but that one Hmm. was something that needed to be done and hadn't been done by anybody. And then moving along, I was always very interested in the grimoires, the grimoires of the sorcerers or the magicians' manuals dating from about the 1200s right through to the last century. And my approach has always been, don't read the texts of their enemies, but read the books that they actually wrote and used. Mm-hmm. It's like if you wanted to investigate 20th century physics sometime in the future, you would read books by the physicists rather than people who are criticizing them. Right. Well, it's not a very good parallel, but there you go. <laughs> and I found remarkable similarities that the techniques were very similar, even though the names of the spirits that were called would quite often be different. And then about 13 years ago, I moved to Asia, which is where I live now, and I met up with Taoist Chinese magicians and with a lot of coaxing got around to talking to them about what they did. And I was quite gobsmacked to discover that the techniques, again, were the same. Hmm. So I think we are talking about something quite real here because 
if they weren't the same, you know, if people just made up magical gibberish every time they they wanted to do some magic, then sure, it's a waste of time. <laughs> but it wasn't. These techniques were all quite parallel. That's so interesting. And in terms of looking at magic from a scientific perspective, I think that's really the approach that is most interesting to me because I'm always interested in how things work and I want to understand the mechanisms behind them. I mean, being at this for as long as you have, can you tell us anything about those mechanisms for those who are still trying to get their head around how this can work? Okay, well, this might upset a few people and I'm sure there are some people who will contradict what I'm about to say. But 20th century magic has sort of become a question of visualizing and, and doing mental exercises and things. And it's not. Hmm. It's nothing to do with mental exercises. It is specific formula, and it is to do with independent spirits, angels, whatever you like to call them. And real magic consists in calling these entities constraining them, binding them, and getting them to do what you ask them to do. And they, they can't do everything. It's not magic like in the children's storybooks. There are very specific things they can do. In fact, specific spirits have specific specialities. And if you ask them to do something that's not, as it were, on their list, then they just plain can't do it. But if you call the correct entity and you call him at the right time of day and you do the procedure in the correct way and you ask him to do something or you tell him or you order him to do something, then nine times out of ten that thing will happen. I'm still figuring out what the tenth time is because <laughs> it doesn't always work. So, you know, because I was uh, brought up in a fairly Western scientific way, I am only interested in things that work and I'm only interested in things that are repeatable. The difficulty with mysticism and, and things like that is they're not necessarily repeatable, but I want something that is as repeatable as, uh, I don't know, metallurgy or mining or something like that, something that you can actually nail down. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to actually contacting spirits, because there are just so many, and like you say, they all have purposes. Some are attached to different days, different times of the day. You know, some chaos magicians, they talk about the idea of building your own pantheon of spirits when you're deciding, like, who to contact. But that's a chaos magician. What are your thoughts on that, or, or at least helping people determine what spirits to approach early on when the list of possibilities can seem kind of overwhelming? Well, I knew Pete Carroll when he used to come to the Illuminous Club in London when he was working with Ray to sort of generate the theories of chaos magic. So we had many a, a long uh, night talking about these things. Hmm. But the spirit is either something that you have... No, the spirits are objective. If you call specific spirits and add them to your team, as it were, then that's a valid remark, and then you can continue to use the same ones. Hmm. Chaos magic is a little bit more about... Well, I won't say generating spirits, but it's not quite the same. Mm -hmm. So how do I explain chaos magic when it works? Well, you know, there is in the background, as it were, a lot of random spirits wandering around. And sometimes a medium, for example, will get a message from a spirit, quite often not 
the Uncle Sam or the, the Uncle Jack that he, she purports to bring it from. But it will be an external message. So sometimes you can hit upon a spirit like that and then get a result. But that's a little bit chaotic. And I would prefer to, to use the grimoire system, which is that you have a, well, they're called in Chinese, the Chinese magicians call them registers of spirits. In Western magic, something like the Goetia has 72 spirits listed together with their, their names, their sigils, and all the things you need to call them. So I would tend to work from an already extant register of spirits rather than trying to generate them. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. And having gone through all the grimoires of the Western tradition, are there systems or books of spells that you consider to be more potent than others? Yeah, there are. There's sort of direct line transmission of, of spells from the Greek magicians. It comes through the thing called the Hygromantia, which then became the source of the Key of Solomon. Now, by the time it reached the Key of Solomon, virtually anybody interested in magic has heard of the Key of Solomon. Certain things got left out because magic was usually passed on an apprentice basis from the master who could do it to an apprentice. And therefore, a certain amount of that became oral instruction and was left out from the books. Or well, they just didn't translate sections of it. So if you go back to the Hygromantia, that one is probably more complete than most grimoires. Hmm. To talk about the history a little bit, is uh, Greco-Egyptian about as far back as we can go, I, I assume? Yes. And I'll, t I'll tell you why. Because Greco-Egyptian papyri, the bulk of them, were probably the work of one or at most two magicians. And these were their working manuals. They wrote out all the spells in hand in ancient Greek, many, many thousands of words, and they tested them and made comments on them. Now, that kind of, as it were, private magician's journal is quite rare. If you go before the Greco-Egyptian, if you, you go B.C., Sure, there's, there's magical stuff in bowls, there's, there's magical stuff in various inscriptions, there's magical stuff in the Book of the Dead, but a lot of this is for the benefit of the dead, what they should do in the post-mortem life. Mm -hmm. And okay, if you happen to have just passed on, maybe some of this stuff is useful. I can't tell. <laughs> but on, the, on this side of the divide between life and death, the material in the Book of the Dead is not particularly useful. There are some methods you can extract from it, but it's mostly concerned with what you do in the afterlife. And likewise, a lot of the other texts that date before in BC period do not give the, the technique and are not written for the purpose of recording the method. You know, or they'll, they'll be written from an external point of view. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really am interested in the history. Did you find that when you're looking at this, did you think the Greeks looked at or used magic differently than the Egyptians in any significant way? Were there different approaches that these two cultures took? Okay. Let's talk about Jewish magic for a few seconds. Sure. Jews have often been considered to be exemplary magicians. In practice, there's very few Jewish magical texts before the ninth century. 
This may be because they've been destroyed, but I think it's more likely that they were not created because as a fairly religious group of people, I don't think magic was particularly popular. But a lot of the words in God names, archangel names, and so forth, flowed into Egyptian and Greco-Egyptian magic. So the Greeks, being very rational, which is why I love them, they think, in a very logical way, wrote out a lot of the Egyptian spells in Greek with comments and did it systematically. And this, the Greco-Egyptian papyri are obviously a Greek magician who could read Egyptian and who understood Egyptian magic, writing it out for his own benefit and for his successor's benefit. And that kind of text is pretty rare. Many texts talking about what magicians did, you know, how they joined the severed head of a, a goose back onto the goose and things like that, but there's nothing about how they did it. So these are stories. I'm not very interested in those. So I've, I've lost the track on your original question. Oh, differences between the Greek and Egyptian approaches. Ah, well, the Egyptian approach was mainly concerned with what you do in the afterlife. The Greeks were very concerned with what you could do in this life. So the, by combining the two, Greco-Egyptian magic has magic to fetch someone you love, magic to improve your health, magic to see a god face to face, things like that to be done in this life. And these, these techniques were then passed after the Muslim invasion of Egypt. They were passed up to Constantinople. And they were used by the monks there. And there's a lot of uh, papyri about that. And then finally, when Constantinople fell to Muslim invasion, they quickly relocated to Italy. And it's in Italy that a lot of these texts were translated into Latin. So I've been lucky to, to get the original Greek and the final Latin and compare the two. And uh, then they continued to be magicians' handbooks right through into the 17th and 18th century. But at that point, they began to be more romantic and the, the practical content was rather diluted by the, a more romantic approach. Hmm. This is kind of a random question, but you mentioned the Book of the Dead, and I'm kind of curious because so many cultures, they have different funeral rites and burial practices. Being someone who puts stock in reincarnation, do you think the different practices might have an effect on reincarnation or the post-death experience? Okay, well, not having had a post-death experience, at least, <laughs> at least not one I can remember, my comments are purely on the basis of observation. The Egyptians mummified the bodies of their, their dead royalty particularly. And as far as I can gather, the purpose was so they wouldn't be reincarnated. By making them the body unable to decay, the person would then be allowed to stay in the in the summer lands in the Amenti, having a good time fishing, you know, playing lutes, whatever the Egyptians mm -hmm. did to life. At least that that's my take on why they mummified. On the other hand, Hindus almost immediately burn the body, and that I am sure forces the spirit onto the next incarnation. They will have a couple of weeks, maybe as much as 40 days, to hang around, and then, then they're forced into the next incarnation. Now, I think 
that's a sort of difference in, in worldview that Hindus thought that they wanted to get on with it, as it were. Egyptians thought, no, 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 I think we will um, stick with the fun time in the, in the afterlife before we have to come to this earth. But as I say, this is, this is my conclusions rather than practical experience. Right. I mean, that is interesting. I, I figure there had to be some rhyme and reason to why they're doing these things, and it might have some kind of effect, but uh, we'll just have to wait and see. And with practicing magicians that I've talked to, there seems to be a fairly common pattern of getting a big dramatic result early on and then having trouble getting back to that level for a while before the results eventually become more consistent. Did you find yourself in a similar pattern to that? Or maybe could you tell us about some powerful results in your early practice that kind of blew the doors off? Well, I was lucky to have had a good physical manifestation in my late teens as a result of working with the Goetia. And I managed to bind that spirit. And so from then on, I had the help of that spirit to bind other spirits. So no, I hadn't experienced a, a drop off in the practice. <laughs> wow. Well, I, you are lucky. So, you know, talking about magic being scientific and repeatable if done correctly, what are some of the most common errors or important things that get missed in terms of doing it right that hurt that replicability? Okay, that's easy to answer. Doing practical magic, you need to consider several important things. One is you actually need protection from the spirit. These people who attempt to call spirits without any protection are really playing with fire. Spirits, and I won't necessarily include angels, they're not necessarily pro-human beings. So in Greco-Egyptian practice and in the medieval practice of the grimoires, it is common to draw and consecrate a circle on the floor around the operator and then to place an area, a spiritus loci uh, or a triangle, into which the spirit needs to be forced to manifest. If that's not done, A, the spirit will either not come or come and lie and will not do what you tell it to do. So that's one thing. Second thing is spirits cannot read your mind, which is a, is a great advantage. <laughs> but they are, they are sensitive to certain things, and one of those is smell. So every magical ritual has the burning of incense. McGurga Mathers thought it was so you could manifest the spirit in the incense, other people, so it could cloud the mind of the operator. In fact, it establishes an atmosphere that the spirit can manifest into if the, if the smells are nice. At the end of the ritual, you reverse it and burn something which is very unpleasant, and this helps to send the spirit back from whence it came. But because the spirits have got such sensitive smell vision, if you like, you need to fast beforehand so that the typical sweat smells of human beings are not there in the ritual. You also need, many of the grimoires say, you need to bath and purify yourself beforehand. That's a really practical thing. That is not a spiritual thing. It is to remove the amount of smell. The Egyptians said should not eat garlic beforehand. When I read that bit, I figured, now, what is it that is common between, oh, and you should not eat fish. What's common between those two? They smell. And so 
if you you know if you've recently been smoking or you you've eaten garlic or you've eaten fish then this tends to drive the spirit away then the, the other thing is you need to do it away from the center of the city although if you got the techniques down pat can be done in the center of the city but it's much better done out where you have no distractions in some ways spirits that you haven't bound a little bit like wild animals yes you can coax them to come but you can't coax them to come if there's heavy traffic thundering past the door and people screaming down the street at least that is hard work then so i i you know, usually they do it out in the open somewhere at one stage i was lucky enough to have a property in france which is well secluded from everywhere else and uh, i had a uh, cleared area amongst trees that was quite useful if done inside the city then quite often it will either be a cellar or possibly a, a very high balcony hmm. but uh, anyway that that's what i found from practical experience that uh, spirits are sensitive they're a bit shy and you need to encourage them to come and then you need to bind them that's so interesting. I did not know smell was such a factor. I mean, I know saying the right words and facing the right direction and having a circle of protection are important when interacting with spirits, but I struggle to rectify how something like a chalk circle could have such an effect on a spirit or how facing north instead of east could really be such a factor in making contact. Do we know what makes these things work even? Yeah, I can tell you what that is. If you just draw a chalk circle, it will have no effect. What you need to do is then take a very sharp sword or dagger and cut the line around there. Now, when you do that, a trace is left in the astral of, of sharpness, as it were, and spirits will not comfortably cross that line. If it's just chalk, that makes no difference to them. But the line must be cut with a sharp instrument. It doesn't hurt also to then say appropriate consecrationary words. But, you know, magic is, is in, a, in a lot of funny ways, very physical. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, the, that's the circle. What was the other thing you mentioned? Oh, uh, facing the right cardinal direction. Ah, ah okay. That, that is important because spirits do come from different directions. If you look at some of the grimoires, they're very specific. Uh, one, the Theurgia Goetia, actually has a 32-point compass rows at the front of the, of the grimoire, indicating which spirit comes from which direction. Chinese magicians also have the same thing, except they have 28 points, and they very specifically call from one of eight directions, or even one of 28 directions. Now, at a very basic level, if you've called a spirit and it comes from behind you, and you're standing there talking, and you've got your back to it, the spirit will actually be offended. They will not be cooperative. So it is always good to face the direction from which you expect it to come. Obviously, sometimes you may get the direction wrong or a little bit off, but if you're actually standing with your back to it when it arrives and you don't notice it's appeared, then the next steps in the ritual you won't take, and you you, you wasted the evening. <laughs> so direction is important. The other thing that's important is timing, as you rightly mentioned. If you want spirits of the moon, Monday is a much better time to call them than, say, Saturday. 
if you want Spirits of the Moon, the first hour of Monday or the 15th hour of Monday is a good time because then you've got the hour right as well as the day. And the reason for this is that in the spirit world there are tides and there are certain times when these spirits are strong enough to manifest and certain times when they're not. If you call the spirit when they're not in a strong position, they cannot come because for them coming to the physical plane is very difficult. It's like if you and I conducted this interview underwater, hmm. sure, with breathing equipment, it would be okay. But if we just had to hold our breath and gesticulate, it would be very difficult. And so for spirits coming to the physical world, until they get used to it, is very difficult. So you need to give them, you need to give them a certain amount of respect, not, not turning it back on them. You need to give them an atmosphere that is pleasant to them. And by that, I mean the, the incense that's pleasant to them. You need to coax them. And if you do all of these things, you may have to try two or three times, but you need to do it at the right time and preferably the right hour. And the, the restriction on time and hour really go back to 2,000 years ago. There were tables in the Greek papyri for the right times to call uh, particular spirits. I reproduce them in my book, and I can tell you that it makes all the difference. If you ignore the right time, then the spirit will probably ignore you. Hmm. And th this also explains a number of failures. People thinking that they can just, you know, get up on a Saturday night and call a spirit of Mercury in an hour of Saturn. It's not going to work. That's so interesting. I mean, I'm curious how this magical practice that you've had for quite some time has helped you construct a more accurate model for reality. I mean, these little magical techniques and kind of rules are sort of clues into the infrastructure we find ourselves in, aren't they? Yeah, indeed. What was it? Shakespeare's famous remark that there's more in this world than, than you and I think of. That, that's a totally misquoted phrase. But hmm. yes, there, there is a hierarchy outside of the physical plane. It doesn't often impinge on the physical plane. But when it does, it can be quite powerful. And if you have called a spirit which can do a specific thing, and that's what you asked it to, and you've given it good reason to do so, nine times out of ten, it will do so. And so I am convinced that this hierarchy is real. And so there's no reason to disbelieve that angels and various levels that you might read about in the Kabbalah also exist. And that makes the physical world just the, the more solid, the more concrete bit at the bottom of a long ladder of various different entities. And some of my friends would say this is a very medieval view of the world. And they would find that faintly amusing. But if you've experienced it, you, you, know, <laughs> you have no problem with that. <laughs> yeah, man. So... Something else that I've heard you say in a previous talk is that magic is useless if you just sit and read about it. It's fascinating and it's interesting, but it is a practice. It's a technology and the whole point is to use it. And I love how direct you are about that. I think a lot of this audience is probably in that place where we know more about magic than the average person, at least on an intellectual basis. But the material can still seem so vast and dense that we might not feel comfortable actually starting to use it. Do you have 
Advice for people who might be right at that point. Is there a go-to ritual or grimoire you recommend people use to get their feet wet? Well, it is very easy to become an armchair magician and to compare grimoires and to read commentaries and all that sort of thing. And there are indeed a lot of people out there. But magic is actually hard work. It's not surprising that a lot of people feel that way. As for a go-to grimoire, no. Magic is quite difficult. You need a number of things. With ceremonial magic, you need to prepare implements beforehand. If you're a chemist and you want to do an experiment, you need to get your Bunsen burner. You need to figure out how to use it. You need to get test tubes and things to contain what you're working on. So in magic, you need to get the implements that are needed, such as the sharp knife to draw the circle. Otherwise, you're just a chalk circle and it's not going to work. You need to get the most appropriate incense for what you plan to do. And you need to get them ready on a particular day. And on that particular day, you need to prepare yourself by ritually asperging or preferably bathing beforehand. And most people are not prepared to do that. Or they take the view, I can just do this in my lounge room <laughs> when the kids have gone to bed. And the spirits are not really that comfortable in all the vibrations and smells and things that you had in your lounge room and the television going in the corner at the same time. This is not the place to do it. So a chemist wouldn't do potentially explosive operations well, probably some people have done it on their kitchen table, but you wouldn't do it in your lounge room. You need to have a separated space to work in. And as I've said, it preferably needs to be long away, away from human beings. But it, it, you can do it with a bit of extra effort. So people don't set this up beforehand, and then they wonder why it doesn't work. You know, I, I, one acquaintance of mine did it in a cellar, and the cellar was absolutely dirty from coal and god knows what else and the spirits just won't come they do not want to go to that particular space it's very strange that people think of well if we talk about black magic that the spirits are evil and dark and whatever actually spirits aren't spirits like a very pure and holy environment and if they don't get it they're not coming hmm. unless you unless you conjure them with but that's getting into other subjects. Yeah, we won't go into that. You've got to offer them a conducive space. And that space shouldn't be used for something else. It should be just used for magic. So most people will say, well, I've got a house and I don't have a spare room for that. And I can't be bothered driving into the country and finding a quiet grove of trees, uh, quite difficult in some countries. Mm -hmm. So they don't do it. They sit down and, and read about it. And, you know, that's commendable too because 50 years ago there weren't a lot of people reading about these things or even taking them seriously. Mm -hmm. So there has been a definite shift. I have to agree that even Harry Potter has helped in this shift. <laughs> yeah, I guess it all helps. What are your thoughts on starting with an ancestor altar or getting the best results with that approach? Not something you'd recommend? Okay. Spirits are of various sorts. There are elemental spirits. There are spirits from the grimoires. And you can also call ancestral spirits. So in a way, that is probably a safer procedure because your ancestors, as long as they realize that they are your ancestors, 
not likely to be harmful. And indeed, mediums sometimes call spirits who will then help them. They would usually refer to them as, uh, what's, the, what's the term? can't remember the term. But anyway, yes, an ancestral altar is not a bad way to start, but it's not the only thing. And one of the things that I often say is that actually dead human beings don't know very much more than live human beings. <laughs> I believe that. So if you want knowledge which is outside of the usual, that you can't find on Wikipedia or in your grandfather's chest, then you need to talk to non-human spirits. <laughs> Fair enough. And to get back to the history a little bit, like I mentioned, a lot of guests we've had, they do magic that maybe is more in the chaos realm or they've invented their own modalities. Mm -hmm. But to have someone here who's so knowledgeable in classical magic, I'm curious if maybe you can shed some light on what a magical life was like before the suppression. Is there any way to really restore that picture? Well, we can restore the picture. Okay, let's, let's whip back to ancient Egypt. The priests did magic. They did it as a trade. And so if one of the villagers came and said they, they wanted an amulet to protect them against sickness or they're going to war and they wanted an amulet to protect them against being shot by arrows, then the priest would do that. There would be no condemnation of that. When the Romans took over Egypt from the Greeks, they were a little bit wary about magicians being used to either predict or cause the death of an emperor. And so several times they, they banned it. But then when Christians in the 4th century flooded into Egypt or whatever happened, and there were definite Roman laws against magic, then magic and pagan religion were sort of lumped together. So while the church was trying to suppress the worship of Anubis or the worship of Isis, the, their procedure was to treat it as a heresy and persecute people. And Christian persecution, the monks started it in Alexandria in, I think, what, 397 or something, where they destroyed one of the major temples in Alexandria and destroyed many of the papyri in the library with the view that if it wasn't sanctioned by the Christian church, then it didn't exist. It didn't need to exist. And then, then this was followed up when the Muslim invasion happened in 660. The guy that conquered Alexandria found the huge library of Alexandria with, and there's many, many guesses, but, you know, 700,000 papyri rolls or whatever. The numbers are probably wildly wrong. Mm. And one of the Christian monks said, what are you going to do with this? So he wrote back to his boss in Babylon and said, what am I supposed to do with all these papyri? And the answer came back, if the papyri conform to what you can find in the Koran, then there's no point, so destroy them. If the papyri contradict what is found in the Koran, then you should destroy them. <laughs> so he fed the bakehouses of Alexandria for six months. I mean, all the bakehouses with papyri. So people cooked their food on the collected wisdom of, of the Greek world. Wow. Which included things like you know, geometry, who the Greeks did 
prior to the Christian era, which has survived up to today, but no thanks to either the Christians or the Muslims uh, in destroying the texts. And then, of course, in medieval Europe, or in fact in, in Constantinople, it was quite often the monks who kept up the practice of magic. Some of them were persecuted for it. Or one of the common ways of punishing somebody was to take their eyeballs out, which meant that uh, they couldn't see what they were doing, but at least they didn't kill them. And so there were various attempts to suppress magic. One, because it threatened the current rulers, because with magic you can do things which might have resulted in a change of, um, what's the word the Americans use, in a regime change. <laughs> yeah. And also a certain amount of, of fear that uh, these guys got an advantage here and we don't really want that to be so. And the heads of the church also didn't want their, if they were not similarly skilled, and a couple of popes were skilled in magic, then it's better to just get rid of it. And while you're burning the manuscripts, you might as well burn some of the practitioners as well. Hmm. Fortunately, quite a few of the practitioners of so-called learned magic, people actually use the grimoires, escaped the fires, but uh, a lot of the manuscripts were burned. And so what we have in the West now is a, a fragmented set of information about magic. And one of the things that I found very useful in Asia was that I was able to see what the Chinese practice was and where some item was used or done, which is missing from Western magic. I looked at the parallel, made the adjustment to the Western method, and it, it worked a lot better. And that's because Chinese magic, although there's been some persecution, is actually fairly intact. Uh, one of the Chinese magicians that I became friends with claims, and I'm not sure that that's true, that he is the 36th in line of, of magician, apprentice, magician, apprentice, right the way down. And certainly some of his magical texts are of considerable age. So, that was confirmatory for me and also helped me to rebuild bits of the Western magical method. And uh, as I started this conversation, it's method that interests me because it's something that can be checked. There's no, no point in asking people's opinion or what did Jack do 300 years ago? Probably interesting, but I want to know how Jack did it and I want to see if I can do it as well. Absolutely. And I wanted to talk to you about John Dee a little bit, because, of course, you're very familiar with him, and you've restored and translated a lot of his fractured writings. But he was also someone who seemed to take a scientific approach to magic, too. And one of my main curiosities is magic's influence and use among the elite, being a general conspiracy guy. But that's another area where John Dee comes up a lot. But what are your thoughts on him and, and his practice? Okay, so... You're right on track there, and we can be we can do the the elite thing because the magic was recorded basically in Latin. Some of the greatest magic grimoires are still in Latin, haven't been translated. And John Dee knew that, and he selected methods from several different grimoires, melded them together, and used them in a scrying context rather than the full invocation. He believed that massive prayer beforehand was all the protection he needed. In fact when his scryer got in touch with, with various spirits, 
he found that he was not contacting necessarily angels, but also other spirits. In fact, Kelly on one occasion complained that he'd been pinched by one spirit and showed quite severe marks on his arm, which, which may have been Kelly having Dee on, but anyway. So Dee quite often would be talking through his scryer to a spirit which was claiming to be an angel but probably wasn't. But Dee was using standard magical technology. And the whole idea was that if I'm contacting angels, A, it'll be safe, and B, they'll tell me the truth. But what he didn't take into account was, well, if they're not angels and they don't tell me the truth, I can be led astray in all sorts of ways. And indeed, poor old John Dee was led a, a little bit astray. Kelly, for example, told him what he should say to Stephen, who was king of Poland. And uh, what he said to him was he told him all for not being a good Christian and how he should pray and do this, that, and the other. And Stephen just refused to see him after that, saying, if I want that kind of advice, I'll go to a priest. I don't need to go to a magician. Hmm. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. But because magic was predominantly available in Latin and to a lesser extent in those days in Greek, you needed to be a scholar or a monk to read it or an aristocrat because they would have had an education which included learning Latin. And as indeed in, say, England up until 1950, um, in the elite schools, you would also have learned Latin. So the interesting thing is that the angel magicians of the 1700s and early 1800s were definitely almost all elite. So, for example, the master of the roles which is one of the highest legal positions. I think Lord Denning occupied it recently. He was an angel magician. The Lord of the Admiralty also was interested in calling spirits. There were a number of lords and also a number of really rich and successful lawyers, and they passed the manuscripts from one to the other, and I've tracked in one of my books who owned what and passed it to somebody else. And you can see the change in methods as it goes from hand to hand. And they are undoubtedly all elite because you don't become a, a senior judge or a lawyer or a, a lord without obviously belonging to the elite class. Now, at the same time, those people who were not quite so literate would have been learning or would have been using a more cut-down form of magic invocation without protection and things like that. But anyway, conspiracy-wise, you're absolutely right. In the 1700s and early 1800s, it was almost entirely the province of the elite. Hmm. Well, conspiracy media, it does tend to be a bit sensationalist when talking about magic, often throwing everything under an umbrella of Satanism and that Nearly everything the elite do is a ritual or blood sacrifice to expand their power or absorb energy from the masses. And maybe I'm hoping we can bring a little nuance to that perspective. But do you see any indications that the elite class of today use magical tools to any significant degree? Oh, that's a, that's a curly question, isn't it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I do know some members of the elite who do practice magic. That is true. One or two of them, they practice it really well. But I don't see any of them practicing it in the ways that the sensational media would have you believe. If we're talking about, who was it, uh, David Eek, 
<laughs> um, people that far out, then I don't really believe any of that exists. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess uh, one question would be, do you get the impression from your study of magic that it could scale up to a level of blood sacrifice and that might affect its potency or is the, are those claims overblown? Okay, well, I'm, I'm going to say straight out that blood sacrifice is one of the methods used in some forms of magic. Mm-hmm. And the reason is that the spirits need to be offered something. Nobody works for nothing. <laughs> and, and there's two approaches. One is you can bind them and force them. And the other approach is that you can gratify them and give them something they want. Now, spirits cannot access of their own accord something on the physical plane. It has to be literally given to them. So when incense is burned, the the words should be expressed, which says that the incense is being burned for their benefit. If you think back into ancient history, the ancient Jews before 70 AD uh, had massive sacrifices of animals in the temple in Jerusalem, dating right back to King Solomon's era. And they knew that that gave them a certain amount of power. Once the Romans had destroyed the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, a lot of that power was lost. Jews were scattered across the world. Very sad for them. And there was was never a possibility of rebuilding the temple. The temple was, in fact, rebuilt three times, almost three times, and... uh, Even early in the Christian era, one of the emperors funded the rebuilding of it again because he was feeling guilty about what they did in 70 AD. But his reign was far too short, so not very much happened. But we're getting away from blood sacrifice. (laughs) Yeah, it's an unpopular thing to say, but yes, small animals are sometimes sacrificed. And for those of you out there who are vegetarian, which I am mostly, and who are squeamish, I don't really see why there should be any difference between doing that and having somebody else slaughter animals so you can eat a steak. Hmm. But eating a steak obviously doesn't have any magical use at all. (laughs) But, you know, animals have been from time immemorial slaughtered by human beings, these days mostly for food. But there is still one set of magical techniques where blood is useful. One word of warning here. Those people who want to be politically correct will say, well, why don't you sacrifice your own blood, you know, prick your finger and a few drops. That's a very unwise procedure because it establishes a direct link between you and the spirit, which in times after that you'll find very troublesome. Hmm. Yeah, I can only imagine. So we kind of talked about John Dee a little bit. Of course, he was uh, an advisor to Queen Elizabeth Do you get any indication that the elite of today have similar magical advisors on call, or do you think those days are done? Uh, That's an interesting question. I remember that uh, Tony Blair and his wife, Sherry, had a rather new age advisor advising them on what they should do, which came out at one stage. But I don't think she equates with what the sort of people we're talking about if the elites have their own magicians, then 
they're not very keen to tell you about it. Right. And, and uh, if I knew of one or two such cases, I really shouldn't elaborate on that. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Dee did useful astrological things like pick the right date for Elizabeth's coronation, thereby making probably one of the best reigns in British history. I'm pretty sure that nobody picked Elizabeth II's date of coronation. Hmm. And it would have been sorted out by a public servant. In Asia, my other interest is feng shui, and I don't mean in the really crass pop way of just moving your furniture around, but I know that a lot of the elites in Asia use feng shui masters to ensure that their projects will be successful and uh, that the money will continue to come. In the case of some of the casinos out here, there are specialist feng shui masters who make sure that money comes into the casino but doesn't leave, as in the, uh, the gamblers should please leave with empty pockets. But feng shui is not magic, but it was my answer in the sense that specialist practitioners are still used by the elites out here. And so it wouldn't be surprising if it was used by some of the European or Western elites. Somehow I don't get the feeling that the present president of the U.S. or even the past couple have asked that kind of advice. <laughs> that's, uh, what I, that, that's the kind of answer I generally get is that it doesn't seem like they're into that stuff at all, that the kind of demonization or just suppression of magic is so severe at this point that even the elite class are missing out on a tool that they could have access to. Yeah. It's more than, these days it's more than suppression. What it is, of course, is I won't say indoctrination, but the scientific approach to everything says, you know, if you can't see it or measure it, it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. My answer to that is you can't see radio waves, but radios still work. And how do you explain that? And if you can pin somebody down and ask them to do that, they'll go into a lot of theoretical stuff, but they can't really demonstrate except perhaps shielding a radio from a source. I don't know where I'm going with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's another thing that has come up before is the idea that maybe all the signals of our modern world might interfere somehow with our connection to the spirit world. Well, I know suddenly that noise and smells interfere with our connection to the spirit world. So it wouldn't surprise me if, if having a Wi-Fi degraded the, um, uh, the, one's abilities in that area. Of course, all of us need to be connected. I, I prefer to be connected to a cable rather than Wi-Fi, but that's just me. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, but I think it's the, the attitude, the attitude that, that magic is uh, nonsense and magic is fairy tales. That protects people from wishing to, to use it. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think Harry Potter has actually influenced the younger generation in a fictional sort of way, but it's at least opened their mind to the possibilities. Absolutely. It gets the wheels turning, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. And then so many more people of that generation are now looking to see you know, what they can find and what they can do. And I have to say, when I was a kid, there was very few books on magic out there. Nowadays, the world, <laughs> there are many. And I, I'm, I'm more guilty than most for having added to the stack of books. <laughs> uh, involved with magic. 
well, considering for how long people could be put to death for reading this kind of stuff, I feel like maybe we should do it just out of respect for people who lost their lives over it. Nice one. Yeah, well, the the Witchcraft Act, I think, was only repealed in 1951 in England. (laughs) I think witchcraft informal persecution probably happened right up to the Second World War. But it's it's more it's more disregard now rather than persecution. Right. Well said. It definitely is. And <laughs> so before we go, I did see that it looks like you're involved in an upcoming release about the Vonic manuscript. Of course, it's legendary because so many people have been unable to decipher it or decode it, having translated so much and being so familiar with old grimoires. What's your take on on the manuscript and its purpose? Do you think you cracked the case? Well, if you ask me point blank, can you translate it? The answer is no. Every time somebody comes up with a theory about it, it's, oh, it's it's bound to be this kind of code or it's it's bound to be coded. Like, it is actually, I'm fairly certain that the original language is Italian and Latin, but it's been coded in such a way. It is not gibberish because people have done letter counts on it and it has the uh, proportions of letters of a natural language. So it's not gibberish. There's definitely something in there. The plant drawings are the the giveaway because a number of the plants have now been identified. It's not really magic. It's it's pharmacy, pharmaceuticals drawn from plants. It's cosmology. It's astrology. And so it's obviously done by somebody who lived in the world where all these things were related rather than separate faculties at universities. It's been the the, uh, stuff it's written on and the ink have been dated. And I think it's been dated to 1420 plus or minus 20 years. So it's really quite old. Mm. It wasn't, it wasn't fortunately invented by, by Voynich himself. It wasn't invented by D. In fact, I think D probably never owned it, despite the stories that he sold it to Emperor Rudolph II. It wasn't written by Bacon. The author will probably always remain anonymous. One day, I believe, somebody will crack it. What we've done in this is produce a very clear photo representation of it, showing how the pages fall and showing the detail and drawing one's attention to several clues and points and things. I wish I could say that we cracked it (laughs) and translated it. I've, uh, or various researchers have figured out some words, particularly plant names in in Italian predominantly, but that's it. It goes no further. Now, to my own detriment, I have to say that there were a number of different editions of the Voynich manuscript suddenly all come out at the same time. And this is, this is rather surprising, but this sometimes happens, that at a certain point people start thinking about a particular manuscript or a particular person like me, and suddenly a lot of books come out on it. All I can say is that the, the one that I contributed to the reproduction is really very splendid, and so you can see a lot of detail. It's a lovely manuscript. I can't see anyone cracking it for another, I don't know, 20, 30, 100 years. <laughs> but um, I'd like to be around when it happens because I really would like to read what's in there. Oh, yeah. It would be great, but it almost seems like 
we would get further and further away from being able to do it as you know the further we get away from its source uh no i think it would have been difficult even in uh, in 1500 people would have been confused by it it's definitely been written by somebody who was very very interested in plants because the the plant details amazing like uh, you know, a rhizome root is one which connects underground and connects to several different plants. It's quite rare, but it's really a detailed drawing of it. So people, whoever made this, hasn't just written rubbish about plants. They've actually dug them up, washed them, looked at the roots, colored them, checked, you know, and then discovered. And I think it's probably for medical purposes. I suspect the person who wrote it was a doctor. At the very least, a herbalist, but probably a doctor. I'm also pretty certain that he lived in northern Italy, somewhere near Pisa. And I'm, I'm absolutely certain that he was Jewish because some of the references in there and some of the descriptions and some of the drawings reflect uh, mikvahs, which were common at that time. And they weren't common in Christian communities and they weren't common in uh, Anyway, read the book. But, <laughs> you know, so I can describe various things about him with certainty, his, his religion, his profession, his, his where he was. I can also say that he probably traveled across the Swiss Alps to southern Germany or that he was patronized by a German family because uh, one of the little drawings in uh, Sagittarius shows a bow and arrow. But it doesn't show a long bow. It shows a crossbow. Hmm. And crossbows were very common in southern Germany, just north of the Alps, and they weren't common in Italy. So, you know, and the little hints like that. And me and uh, two of my colleagues who are from Central Europe, one is Polish, who is also interested in John Dee, did a lot of digging. And, well, we haven't dug out everything, otherwise we'd have the answer, but we've dug out more than other people have up to this point. Very cool. Well, the devil's in those details, and you seem to be closing <laughs> in on it. And uh, <laughs> Wow. Well, Dr. Skinner, this has really been an honor for me because I do have so much respect for your work and contributions to the magical community and history. Hopefully, what seems like a magical resurgence continues to grow and more people end up appreciating those contributions as well. Before we go, would you like to remind the people where to get deeper into your work, any upcoming projects or your web address, those kind of things? Well, if you're interested in feng shui, then I've done a couple of books on feng shui, particularly one on flying star feng shui. Flying star feng shui is one of the best methods for working inside a home. If you're interested in Greco-Egyptian magic, then I've done techniques of Greco-Egyptian magic which was published by Golden Board. You can see it on Amazon. You can pick it up in bookshops in the States, a few bookshops in, in England as well, and a couple in Europe. Sadly, not in Singapore. <laughs> then I've also done a techniques of grimoire, of Solomonic magic, which covers a lot of the grimoires. Uh, and it actually lays down the various tools that you need and how they should look and how they should be prepared. So techniques of Solomonic magic is useful if you're going to do that sort of thing. And if you were interested in the Goetia, then uh, David Rankin and I produced the Goetia of Dr. Rudd. Dr. Rudd was a real practitioner um, in the mid-1600s. 
he actually advanced magic a fair bit and uh, we we produced his manuscript in entirety and I've written quite a lot of commentary on how he did it and where the historical background is and all that sort of thing. So that's good if you're interested in the Goetia. Otherwise, there's actually in total 46 books out of my pen. Uh, <laughs> some of them um, long since gone out of print, but I'm fairly easy to find on Amazon. Probably easier to find on Amazon than in the bookshops. Mm -hmm. Isn't that the case these days? Yep. Well, very cool. Again, can't thank you enough. You're an inspiration, man. Take care out there. Okay, thanks for putting up with me for what is it? Uh, well over, uh, well over now. <laughs> oh yeah, two hours. <laughs> oh, good God. Anyway, it's been fun talking to you. Thanks, Greg. You got it. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Peace. Abracadabra and cheers indeed, Hireside Chatters. Big thanks to Dr. Stephen Skinner. Mm. So, so impressed with his knowledge. And this was an episode that I studied quite a lot for, if you can believe it. But there's just so much, so much to know. Just even getting your head around a single century or tracing one particular text is difficult enough, not to mention the various layers of context for the times, various waxing and waning influences, laws and attitudes, and the level of aggression towards magic at a particular point. Whew. I find it to be a lot of fun, actually, but quite challenging. Conveniently, I'm also deep into Gordon White's Grimoire course, which has to be like the best of its kind. I know nothing like it. Tons of amazing information. Very synergistic with this episode of THC and what I've been having to digest for quote-unquote work lately. But the Higromantia is now on my wedding registry, along with an altar to replace my makeshift one out of my fiancé's childhood toy box. And we also got a whole lot of dab rig supplies and concentrate stuff on there, too. So deal with it, family. You got a real Sophie's Choice to make here. Are you going to buy me and the lady drug supplies or occult stuff? Or a nice Nutribullet blender while you can still grab yourself a neutral option. Act quick, family. And another effect that this episode and Gordon's Grimoire course have had on me is that they have sent me on a path of looking for old rare books and libraries or collections that I could check out locally. It's just fascinating stuff. And a lot of what I found isn't in English, which is to be expected. But if I had an extra 10 grand laying around... I could see the appeal in getting an old book of spells that maybe hasn't been translated and slowly going through and working out that translation. I mean, fuck Sudoku and the Sunday paper crossword puzzle, right? I mean, do this if you want a challenging puzzle to solve. But I love it. One of the most academic approaches to magic we've probably taken with a guest, and I have a lot of pride in this show because I don't find many interviews with Dr. Skinner out there. And I think about how many people listen to this show and just making it to this point, you really are in a pretty special club. Like Miguel Connor too, great show on Gnosticism two weeks ago. Take that and this piece and you have a nice little crash course and some very deep material. Do you think anyone in your regular life understands these things like you do just off these cliff notes? I mean, especially if you heard the plus shows. These two episodes would be the start of a nice little gift set if there were such a thing. Of course, I don't want to diminish the depth of these studies or these guests' work. 
and make it sound like, well, two-hour podcast, we know what we need to know. But at the same time, we are putting this out to a lot of people compared to what's typical for a genre like magic. Granted, it's a small niche, so I'm not trying to brag about anything because it's kind of like being the world's tallest midget. But it is still cool to me. An analogy would be Joe Rogan, right? So he's got like the podcast of all podcasts and his audience is larger than probably two thirds of what's on TV. So I love to watch it because of that fact. And when he does a show about Pizzagate or one with Randall Carlson, I get all worked up and giddy because it's not that it's the most mind blowing stuff ever for someone who looks into this regularly, but just because I know how many people it's reaching. And that's what's cool about it. Scale that down to THC, where we're reaching tens of thousands of people, but our subjects are even more obscure. <laughs> anyway, I do think the good doctor is spot on when he talks about the difficulty of doing magic. We've been trained to sort of brush the whole subject off like, oh yeah, I can manifest things with squiggles on paper. If it was that easy, everyone would do it. Okay, well, how many times have you done it? How many times have you tried? You can't outsource everything. And I think the analogy that magic is like chemistry is great. It requires a lot of setup, precise calculations. It's not easy when you start to get into it. But easy shouldn't really be the question either. Is it worth it should be the question. And to me, it seems like it is, though I am still light on personal results, if I'm being honest. But staying up to date with Empire hasn't resulted in anything either. So I guess the bar is pretty low. And if you only heard a one-hour show today, know that the Higher Side Chats always puts out the first hour of each show for free. But if you want to go deeper, sign up for the Higher Side Chats Plus for just five bucks a month on our website and unlock the whole shebang. Today in the Plus Show, I asked Dr. Skinner about separating real dangers and concerns in magic from that religious propaganda, John D. and Edward Kelly's alchemical work, separating magic, religion, and the mystery tradition, the connection between spirits and powerful art, that part I love, ufology's connection to magic and inner earth beings, that part I love too, invisibility magic, feng shui, the Vonic manuscript, and everything you ever wanted to know about magic but were afraid to ask. So join the club, you get the full archives, lifetime access to the Higher Side Chats Plus forum, and occasional treats that you just won't believe. And it's been a pretty good month. Last week was Richard Belzer, a big name to be getting down here in the gutter with little old me, and something a lot of people liked, although there were a lot of people who also noticed that he does seem a little stuck in the liberal bubble. I would agree, but still fun. Miguel Connor, super great romp through Gnostic scholarship. Boom, what more do you want? Recluse, who I thought knew a lot about the six degrees of Kevin Bacon aspects of the deep state and some of their unsavory operations. And then Isaac Weishaupt, who dropped some knowledge on May the 4th about esoteric and occult aspects of Star Wars and other media staples. I think we've done all right in May. Well worth five bucks if you ask me, and June will be no different. Next week, we're getting into reptilian, bankster priesthood, secrets of American history, and instead of the same old news articles about giant skeletons in early America, we're going deep into the journals and written accounts of conquistadors who said they encountered living giants. So, hell of a ride next week. And then the one after that is just really high-level conspiracy 
stuff that's well-sourced that you're going to love. So sign up already. You know this show is unique enough. Treat yourself, and I'll see you next time. Do pick up Dr. Skinner's books if you want to go deeper. Find a way to let them know you appreciated this interview. And I've done my part. Your move, oppressive overlords of the timeline, spirituality siphoners, and religious authorities guilty of the great grimoire fracturing. Your fucking... Thanks for listening to the first hour of the Higher Side Chats podcast with me, Greg Carlwood. If you don't know, there is a second hour to all the episodes we do around here. Generally, we're able to get a lot deeper into the topics and ideas that a guest is about. 
So if you enjoyed what you've heard from THC for free, consider signing up at thehiresidechatsplus.com to get the second hour of the five shows I put together each month. I never really wanted to be a paid subscriber podcast, but I really hate the idea of spending airtime promoting some product that's completely unrelated and telling you the best way to support the show is to buy an audiobook or new underwear by mail or something crazy like that. So instead, if you like the show, double your time with it for five bucks a month and let's cut out all the other shit. It's half the price of a movie ticket and you get at least an extra five hours of show a month. Collectively, it keeps us stable and it frees me from wasting your time with anything but the show you came to listen to. It's really the only way for an independent one-man show to make it, and I do what I can so that it's worth your while. Since we started this, I've always tried to use the subscriptions to improve the podcast and make signups more advantageous. It started with just a second hour for the main show, but now we've got a nice forum going where people can get deeper in conversation about the episodes with other listeners submit a candidate in the guest request thread, or share their own personal projects to get out of the soul-crushing 9-to-5 cog-in-the-wheel life on the entrepreneur's thread. The forum and the plus comments are always the first places I try to go for listener engagement, but it does get harder as the show gets more popular. Because of that, there's also a direct messaging feature that you can use to reach me through the plus site also. But beyond the form, if you like any of the music I've used for THC, most of it I've hired artists to make, and I provide it all as free downloads to Plus members too. So if you like a particular song you've heard close the show out recently, come get the MP3. I should also mention that if you don't like the idea of paying $5 recurring every month, I get that. You can buy three months, six months, or a year up front and just be done with it. I have plenty of listeners who send checks and money orders to the P.O. Box too, I try to make it as easy for people as I can, and you can read more about it on the sign-up page. Also, be sure to check out the FAQ help page on the Plus site if you have any questions or concerns about how to listen to a password-protected show on your devices. I've highlighted a lot of great solutions, and one of those would be the iPhone app that just recently hit the Apple App Store. A super kind and talented listener made it for us, and you can use it to stream or download either the free or the Plus show. If you're on Android, I'd use Pocket Casts or Podcast Addict and subscribe to the feed manually that way. I also try to throw in occasional bonus shows or Q&A shows, and I've got a few other weird ideas I might get to try out soon, but I give you all I can for five bucks, and I hope you'll at least give it a shot if you've listened to a few free shows and you find them unique or valuable. I know there's a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm just one of them. But if you have any questions, concerns, or comments about any of this, please get in touch with us at the Higher Side Chats team at gmail.com. I also wanted to plug the Higher Side newsletter I'm going to be putting out totally free for anyone who wants to sign up at the main internet website for the show, thehiresidechats.com. You can also get on that email list through the Higher Side Chats Facebook page. There's a button there as well. But the reason I'm doing this is because I get tons and tons of emails after a show goes up asking me about how I feel about a particular guest or topic, and the wrap-up isn't always the best place to do that, especially if I have anything negative to say. Sometimes the dust needs to settle, sometimes I need to hear feedback from you guys first. There are a lot of factors, but I usually have something to communicate to you, and I just don't get to do it. So on the first of the month, I plan to send out a little newsletter with my thoughts about the five shows the previous month, and talk to you about anything else that's on my mind or that's going on. And what's probably most enticing is that I'm going to give you some insight into at least one guest I have coming up in the month, which people have been begging for some posted schedule for a long time. I personally think I'd like the surprise. 
but sign up for the Higher Side newsletter. It's free. It comes out on the first of the month, and I won't waste your time with any other emails. And that's it. I appreciate you listening. I try to give alternative ideas and guests a fair shake on a high-quality podcast, expose some deep-level conspiracies without the yelling, and I hope to offer some inspiration that even though the system relentlessly suggests you should follow their blueprint to mediocrity, you can do your own thing and live a much happier life despite all the negativity in the world. So go ahead and treat yourself. Isn't it about time? <laughs>